Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Michelle Green to the show. Michelle brings legal, policy, and operational expertise to her role at the Long-Term Stock Exchange. Her experience includes serving in senior roles at the New York Stock Exchange and the U.S. Department of the Treasury as a consultant with McKinsey & Co. and as a securities lawyer. She teaches at Columbia University and has served on numerous nonprofit boards and as a member of the White House Council on Women and Girls. Michelle is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School. Michelle, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Michelle, thank you for being on. Michelle, where are you located? Well, normally I'm located in New York City, but um, during the pandemic, we have uh, decamped to New Jersey. So I'm in New Jersey at the moment. (laughs) And how's the weather in New Jersey? It is hot. Is that abnormal for this time of year? No, hot and humid is pretty typical for August. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hot and humid in Dallas, so I guess we're both feeling the same temperatures. Yes. (laughs) So Michelle, I like to open this show by asking my guest, if you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Hmm. Well, I think one interesting thing that probably doesn't usually come out is that I helped to knock down the Berlin Wall. Um, I was was studying abroad at the time uh, in what was then called the Eastern Bloc and um, arrived in Berlin from the East and got a hammer and hammered away, and I still have pieces of it in my house today. That's amazing. I remember watching that on TV. Now, were you one of the people that actually climbed up on top of it? No, no. I was I was knocking on one side while others were knocking on the other side, and every now and then we'd make a hole where the two sides would meet, and a huge cheer would go up, and we'd all rush to see the people on the other side and you know make the hole bigger so that we could all come together. It was It was an incredible experience. It sounds amazing. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, what led up to that moment? Yeah, so I, during college, um, I was studying economics and history and um, politics, and I had an opportunity to study abroad in what was then the communist Eastern Bloc uh, in Budapest. Uh, I attended Karl Marx University, which my grandparents were sure meant I would never get a job. Um, (laughs) And um, we had these fabulous professors who were part of the underground democracy movement there, And when the Berlin Wall's first, like the very first hints of it started, they said, class is canceled for the week, get on a train, go to Berlin, this is history, you should be there. So um, we did. And it was this incredible experience. We actually got pulled off the train at gunpoint in Czechoslovakia on the way there, um, but got put back on and and made it to uh, East Berlin. And then we traveled, you know, from the East, which was a whole different experience too, um, to the wall. And then, uh, you know, joined in with so many others who were who were helping to bring it down. It was just this kind of euphoric time. It was incredible to be there. What an encouraging story. 
I personally wish that maybe academia would take more opportunities like that. You know, last year there was the climate strike on Fridays that Greta Thunberg led. And I I have three young daughters and I encourage them. I said, look, if you want to skip school and go, you know, protest or strike, I think, I think we need more of that. I think it ties the children or young people back to the community. Um, I agree. I kind of feel that way about election day a little bit. You know, I've heard a few companies are giving uh, election day off to their employees, but I feel like if we want more social engagement, community engagement, I think these are the kind of opportunities or these are things we should encourage our youth to do. So, you know, kudos to your professor back then. And I hope that um, we kind of move back generally from a society standpoint in that direction. Could could not agree more. And actually, my I have a high school daughter and her school said, we encourage you to take you know, time to go to the climate strike. We've talked with the students and they don't want it to be a just take the afternoon off. So we are going to do detention for anybody who leaves to go, but the detention will be a learn-in about climate change. So I thought that was just a really smart approach. So it, it was, you know, the kids who really wanted to engage took the time, went to the climate strike, and then went to detention to, to learn about climate change. So um, I do think you know, educational institutions encouraging that kind of behavior is is really a reason for hope. Absolutely. And what a small price to pay, you know, a detention where you get to learn about climate change and participate. It sounds like a win-win to me. Exactly. Exactly. So, Michelle, switching gears, can you give me an overview of the long-term stock exchange? Absolutely. So, on the long-term stock exchange, uh, what we just got our official approvals last year, but we've been working on it for a number of years. And really the idea behind it was that we want companies to show up in the world differently and we want there to be a public market and an incentive system that rewards those companies that are thinking about more than just next quarter's results. So how can you as a company really be thoughtful about your impact on the world, on your workers, the environment, the communities that you're a part of, both geographic and otherwise? And um, of course, shareholders are, are one of those stakeholders as well. But for those companies that are really planning for the long term, making decisions for the long term, you know, making the smart choices that mean that they operate well as a company, but also as a member of a broader community. How can we create a system that both um, highlights that so that those investors, because a lot of investors do want to invest in those types of companies, so that those investors know which companies are in fact operating that way, and that those companies can um, operate in a system that doesn't push them with a quarterly cadence, but rather that rewards this longer term perspective. So that was really um, the reason we were founded. Our founder is Eric Rees, who's um, a fairly well-known figure in in Silicon Valley and beyond. He wrote a book called The Lean Startup that's really about innovation. And part of the reason behind the long-term stock exchange was because this relentless quarterly short-term cadence really impedes innovation. And so how can we create a public marketplace that encourages innovation? Um, and we are you know, a mission-driven company, obviously. Um, and in addition to our stock exchange, which has a different set of rules, because we want to change the rules to change the system, um, we also have uh, a software business, which creates tools that help companies to operate in this kind of a way. So the reason for the stock exchange is really that ability to change the rules and that ability to create a system that operates differently. 
So I'm familiar with Eric's work. I had a, my own technology startup that I launched in 2014. I read his book. And also during that time, things like Lean and Agile were becoming more popular. Yeah. And I, you know, we, we ran some um, Agile and sprints during my startup. And I found a disconnect between those processes and taking a long-term view how have you found the companies that you've spoken to? You know, you mentioned smart choices. What does it mean to make smart choices? And how do you, how have you found the company you've spoken to align with the idea around this long-term stock exchange? Yeah, so what I mean is I think you see in the public markets today, there's a lot of pressure to deliver quarterly results. And when you talk to folks who work in companies, what you'll hear is that there's this relentless quarterly cadence um, to the operations of the company often because of that pressure around quarterly results. And so in the moment of making choices um, that will impact those quarterly results, it's very hard when that's the pressure for, for companies to take the long-term view. So just to give an example, I think human capital is a great example, right? Human capital in our current system is effectively booked as overhead when you invest in your people. Um, which is kind of crazy because if you're really a company that wants to succeed over the long term, you know that investing in your people is in fact an investment in the future of your company. And so being willing to make an investment in your people, being willing to make an investment in long-term R&D, um, you know, being willing to think about what is the impact of our action going to be on the environment, what's the impact of our actions going to be on the community and being willing to make those choices, you know, day to day. Um, currently, you're making them in a system that's pushing back very hard to not miss those quarterly numbers. And sometimes the right choice does involve missing those quarterly numbers or does involve, you know, innovation is a great example, does involve making an investment spending today for something that won't pay off perhaps for a long while, but that ultimately will be better for the company and better for the world. And so how do you create a system that removes that quarterly pressure and encourages and incentivizes those decisions that are really about long-term value creation and thinking more broadly than just this quarter's results? You know, you've taken me back in my memory a little bit. I was in consulting back in 2012, 2013, and I remember being inside a large Fortune 500 company, and it was coming up on the end of a quarter. And I asked one of the employees there, how do you think we're going to do, you know, where the number is going to land? And they said, essentially, everything's already baked in. It sounded like the company had already contorted to meet the numbers that were yeah. going to come out. And yeah, unfortunately, very- that's the incentive system as it exists today. There, There's this real desire to, you know, bake that in to really, and, and there's some academic studies that back this up as well, to really even engage in financial engineering if that's what it takes to meet those numbers. So, you know, there are studies showing that companies are much more likely to do buybacks if they were just about to miss their quarterly figures than if they weren't. And then in, in the year following those behaviors, you also see some of these long-term investments go down. So I think it, it's it's real. You know, that's the pressure that companies feel and they do bake it in and they do, unfortunately, you know, take some financial engineering steps to try and make sure it comes out right sometimes. And we want there to be a system where there's no incentive to do that. And in fact, there's a disincentive because what the real focus on, is on is not your quarterly numbers, but rather 
what does success look like for you as a company over the long term? How are you defining success? And that doesn't mean that there's no accountability in in shorter time periods. Of course, there is. But it's accountability for metrics that are meaningful in terms of your overall long-term trajectory and where you're trying to go. So you set and share a long-term strategy. Your investors, your stakeholders can buy into that. You're clear about how are we going to know if we're succeeding along that trajectory and there are metrics and accountability, but it's accountability for metrics that matter, for metrics that really speak to how the company is moving toward its long-term goals. And that, I think, is something that in today's world in particular is really beginning to resonate more with companies. And can you give an example of a few of those meaningful metrics? Yeah. So in the very early days of the internet, um, companies like Google were looking for um, things like eyeballs on a page. Um, And at the time, that was not a common metric, but it was a way that they could say, you know, that's not money in this moment because we didn't have the same type of advertising regimes on the internet that we do now. But it was a way that they could say, okay, how many people are actually engaging with us? Because that tells us something about future revenue. Um, or if you're a company that wants to expand into a new geography, um, you know, you want to get some measure of, are we in the future going to be successful in our growth into this new um, marketplace? And so you may measure that by the number of offices you're opening there before you can measure the revenue that's coming in from there. So there's all sorts of different examples, but the idea is that these are leading indicators, indicators of future growth or future um, profit that uh, are not looking backwards, but in fact, looking forwards and are aligned with your long-term strategy. So if companies decide to transition from reporting quarterly, what is the cadence that they, do they set it for themselves or do you ask them to set it at a specific time? Yeah. So just to be clear, (laughs) at the moment, we're not trying to change any existing SEC rules. So quarterly reporting is required by the SEC. Um, And for right now, that's not something we're trying to change. Quarterly guidance is where a lot of this pressure comes from. And we don't think quarterly guidance is helpful. Um, And one of the things that the, the pandemic has actually helped to do is helped companies to move away from quarterly guidance. You see, um, many companies that have have stopped giving quarterly guidance in in the pandemic. Um, So the quarterly guidance is really, we feel, the detrimental piece. But in terms of how you define long-term on the long-term stock exchange, it is something that companies define for themselves. Um, They have to uh, report a series of policies around uh, five different areas. Um, And those policies have to be updated annually. They have to be reviewed annually to see if they need updating. Um, But the requirements around reporting, you know, remain what the SEC has determined. But the idea is really that it's not the quarterly reports that are important. It's the context in which they're conveyed. So companies can provide information about what their own definition of long-term is. That's one of the listing requirements. So for for example, a consumer goods company, um, you know, a clothing company, something like that, and they have a much shorter time frame for planning and for other purposes than, say, an energy infrastructure company, which, you know, by definition is going to have a longer time horizon. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to have the same time period, but they have to tell their stakeholders and their investors 
what do we identify as the long term? And what are the different time horizons that we use for different purposes? So you may be seeking to succeed as a company, you know, indefinitely, forever. Um, you may think about your, um, you know, vision in a 20-year time horizon, but you may do your strategic planning in a three or five-year time horizon. So the idea is really, let's give the investors and the stakeholders the information about what are the time horizons that the company sees as most relevant and how is the company holding itself accountable over those time horizons so that the quarterly reporting can be um, ingested by, by outside parties in the context of this broader strategic plan that has a much longer time horizon than one quarter. And the metrics that become relevant are not the quarterly EPS, which of course would still be reported under existing rules, but rather the relevant metric is how you're doing against your own long-term plan and against your own long-term metrics and leading indicators. And that becomes the way that success is judged rather than this relentless quarterly EPS focus that really doesn't actually tell you a lot about how the company is going to succeed over the long term. And what are the five areas you mentioned? Yeah, so the five areas, the way that the new rules or the listing standards work, because um, when a company lists on a stock exchange, and currently companies list on either NYSE or NASDAQ, and there are sets of rules called listing standards that they, they need to follow. What we've done is we've added five additional requirements into the listing standards. And those really relate to some key areas of long-term success as we see it. And what we've taken is a principles-based approach. So we have underlying core principles and companies need to adopt publicly, they're publicly available, five policies that correlate with each of the underlying principles. The first one is around stakeholders, and that's the most prescriptive because it does require that companies share their approach to things like diversity and inclusion, and how they reward their workers when they're over the long term when the company succeeds, um, to how they approach the environment and how they approach their community. So it gets a little bit more granular than some of the other policies, but that's because our underlying theory is that those companies that are thinking long term about engaging effectively with their stakeholders will be more successful over the long term. So stakeholders is the first policy. Then there's also a policy about shareholders. Um, shareholders, of course, are a stakeholder as well, but but specifically how is the company effectively engaging with its long-term shareholders? Because we do think that this ability to really create long-term value in a different way requires that alignment between the long-term investors and the, and the visionary companies. And, and you hear that desire from both the investors and the companies. So the, one of the policies is, is also around long-term shareholders. The third policy is around long-term compensation, and this is both for executives and the board. And it's about how the company chooses to align the compensation of its executives and board members with long-term success of the company. Um, Then the fourth one is around um, long-term strategy. And this relates to how do you put forth your strategy for the long-term how do you operationalize that in, in the way that decisions are made on a day-to-day basis? And that's the one that's really about changing the narrative. So the narrative is not about the quarterly focus, but rather the narrative is about what is this long-term strategy? What do we as a company consider long-term 
what are the time horizons that we use for different purposes and how do we hold ourselves accountable. And then the final one is around the board and the role of the board in ensuring that the company is focusing on long-term success and having direct oversight and direct responsibility for that focus on the long-term. Because we see a lot of board members today who will say, we as board members spend far too much time looking backward and auditing and not enough time looking forward and thinking about the long-term strategy. And so making that a more explicit responsibility of the board. And as I said, these are all principles-based because we felt that it was really important to give companies the room to be creative and to come up with new solutions. And and we didn't want to create a ceiling. We wanted to create a floor um, for the many creative approaches companies might take to different pieces of this. But one of the requirements for all of these policies is that they are, in fact, aligned with the underlying principles. Thank you for sharing that. So like any new idea, there must be challenges. What are some of the challenges or the hard conversations that you and your team have had with you know, some of the companies that you've engaged with? Yeah, of course, anything new. <laughs> um, I think there's, of course, a risk aversion um, among many companies. You know, the, the moment of an IPO, this is both for existing public companies and for new companies that are becoming public. Um, and it's also something that you can do as a dual list. So you don't need to, you know, leave your existing exchange. You can add the long-term stock exchange on, or you, if you're IPOing or doing a direct listing or however you may be becoming public, um, you also don't need to do it solely on the long-term stock exchange. You can also do it with another exchange. Um, and the I think the biggest you know tough conversation that we have is about this sense of perceived risk. I think companies feel like, particularly at at the moment that they go public, this is a big moment for them, and something new is is risky. Um, You know, when we dig deeper into that conversation and get at what are really the components of risk that they're concerned about, often we can alleviate a lot of those uh, just because of the way that the market works. Um, There's there's kind of not actually a liquidity risk, which is a big concern. Um, And the, um, you know, the, the opening and closing auctions take place on what's called your primary exchange, which if you do a listing with us and another exchange is the other exchange. So We've thought about lots of ways to mitigate that sense of perceived risk that companies may have, but I think you know the the opposition to something new is always that it it's a change and changes uh, make people uncomfortable and feel risky. And so we're definitely having those conversations with companies. I think the other piece is in terms of the policies themselves, companies want to get it right. And one of the things that we really struggled with was how do you both allow for an appropriate amount of company-specific approaches, but also the right amount of accountability. And I think companies themselves, as they're putting together their policies, and these are really, you know, we're talking to some incredibly visionary companies that are thinking about really creative, interesting new approaches. And they struggle as well with how much of that do we bind ourselves to? Because what if our creative new approach actually has issues and we need to pivot? You know, how do we leave ourselves the right amount of flexibility with the right amount of accountability. So those are those are some of the conversations that we're having. And how would you hold some of these companies accountable? Look, this is the reason we created the exchange. Um, we feel like if you if you look at what's out there right now, you know, there's a lot of pledges and 
letters and frameworks for companies that are saying that they're focused on the long term or they're focused on stakeholders or they want to be focused on on those things. And um, it's very hard for those companies that truly mean it and operate in a different way to differentiate themselves from those who see this as kind of the shiny issue of the moment and are signing up for something. And so part of what we wanted to do was to find a way to really bind companies to a particular way of operating. And that's something that the companies that we talk to, these visionary companies, are excited about because they want to show that, yes, this is a meaningful commitment and we intend to operate this way because it's who we are. It's in our DNA as a company. And so they uh, welcome the opportunity to show that commitment through a set of binding listing standards. And it's also a way to really differentiate from those companies that are just saying it. So the listing standards, the way that listing standards work on an exchange is that um, exchanges are what's called SROs, um, self-regulatory organizations, and they have the power to enforce the listing standards, the regulations. Um, And that comes with the ability to delist a company that is not meeting those standards. So it's a, it's a, pretty strong um, and binding, you know, the power of the securities laws are behind it. If you as a company say you are going to do certain things pursuant to these policies, you have promised to do those things. You are bound to that. So it's a, it's a me- very meaningful commitment. Um, but one, as I say, that, that the companies we're talking to are kind of eager to make in order to differentiate themselves from those who kind of don't mean it. And I think that opportunity to differentiate is going to get more important going forward. I've spoken to a lot of different individuals, companies. I think the millennial generation and the Gen Gen Z are asking different questions of the company. So I think those that are willing to take that first leap, if you will, will inevitably benefit from the long run. Absolutely. Look, I think there's a lot of trends right now that are working in favor of this sort of an approach. You know, we've seen increased employee activism. As you say, the the generations that are coming up in the workforce now are much more focused on working at a place that shares their values um, and, you know, willing to even take less pay in order to do that. And I think there's a lot of customer pressure as well. We're seeing customers increasingly caring, not just am I getting a good product at a good price, but how is it being produced? What does the company that's producing it stand for? So I think there's a whole um, bunch of realities happening in society today that are, are really rewarding the companies that think this way. Absolutely. So Michelle, I'm going to change direction here. The crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You have an accomplished background. Why now? Why LTSE? What drives you? What motivates you? Yeah. So I, in terms of why now, I'll start with why now, why LTSE. Um, I, my, my immediately prior job, I was working at the, the New York Stock Exchange and was working, um, I, I built and launched their global corporate responsibility program. And this was a while ago now at a time when that was a relatively new field still. Um, and a lot of companies were just starting to think about it. Um, and what, what, I found when I was working with, I worked with a number of different companies, helping them develop their own ESG or sustainability or corporate responsibility programs. And what I found as I was working on those sorts of programs in, you know, big major companies was that they needed to, to be effective, they needed to really be central to the company and aligned with the company strategy. And some companies thought about it that way, but a lot of companies were doing it as kind of a, a, you know, a nice to have or in a silo type of activity. And what 
I have the, the conclusion I eventually came to was that to really integrate this different view of the role of a corporation in the world, what was most effective to do that was to change time horizon, right? Because a company that's very focused on the next quarter is not thinking about their community or their environment or diversity or investing in their people because, you know, for right now, for next quarter, you won't necessarily get a payback on that. But the companies that are truly thinking over a longer term time horizon, they're not thinking about those types of issues because they should and it's good to and it's part of their you know sustainability program. They're thinking about those types of issues because when they think about succeeding, they have to be thinking about those types of issues. So what I found was time horizon was really a way to make this idea of changing corporate behavior front and center for the corporations themselves or the corporations that think this way. So so for me, it was an evolution to this time frame being an important component of how we have corporations show up differently in the world and we reward those corporations that do so. So um, I fortuitously, I actually was, was um, working uh, on a number of different consulting projects at the time because NYSE had, had changed ownership and um, fortuitously connected with somebody after looking at this from the nonprofit side um, pretty significantly connected with somebody who was talking with Eric about his plan. And it was an exciting idea to me that there was a way to really bring about systemic change in the way that the financial markets um, influence corporate behavior. And so YLTSE was this exciting idea that we might actually be able to make a systemic change that could influence the behavior of, you know, hopefully eventually many, many hundreds of corporations or thousands of corporations, and that that could have an enormous impact on, on society. So that, that was my motivation for coming to LTSE. Um, but in terms of what drives me more broadly, um, I have had a kind of eclectic career, but the way that it makes sense is that for me, it's always been mission driven and, um, you know, it sounds cliched um, and perhaps it is, but for me, it's always been about is what I'm doing something that is going to bring about positive change. And that's been in different forums and different ways. Um, but that's really been the driving key for me um, is is bringing about some positive change. And, and of course, continuing to learn and work with great people, <laughs> which which is um, generally I found in, in mission driven organizations often is uh, true as well. You know, even if it is cliched, it's beautiful. And I think that most futurists or visionaries live in a cliched world. Quite often I've had guests say it sounds corny, it sounds cliched, but they're trying to make beautiful changes in the world. So I, I really appreciate that. While you were speaking, I wanted to, I had an idea. Are you also, is LTSE also speaking to universities, colleges, et cetera? Because I can still see a generation of students, MBA students, you know, being put into the workforce that are still forced to think with this. And I'm going to call it short-term thinking or quarterly thinking with that idea. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So yes, we do. We're talking to, I talk to a lot of um, professors and folks who work at business schools um, and, and universities. I actually teach um, at Columbia at the School of International and Public Affairs. And um, I'm working separately, not for SEPA, but separately putting together um, uh, the outlines of a course that would teach about these issues. But I, I think you're exactly right. The, the education really needs to start 
you know, when you're learning about how business works. Um, and we have a whole project that we're working on right now about resilience and resilience of companies. And um, we're doing some some research on that, working with some universities as well. So I think your point is very well taken. We're doing a little bit of it, but I'd love to do even more. You know, I've read a lot of books and articles regarding the concept of time. I struggle with it quite a bit, meaning that, you know, generationally speaking, I come from an Indian background. We have a much longer view of time. And I often feel like I operate in, you know, years decades sometimes. And I find it challenging when being in an environment that whether it's quarterly or even from eight hour day concept, I think changes entire concept of how we look at time and what we want to accomplish. You know, very often people say, when, when will you give up on your goal or when will you give up on your mission and takes as long as it takes. And I feel like some of what you're adopting in the long-term stock exchange is that this is our mission and it's going to take us as long as it takes to accomplish it. I saw Eric Reese speaking on a panel, and he mentioned when Jeff Bezos first launched Amazon and he launched, he put out a letter and said, we're going to take really long time horizons and to see where he's come with that company. I think other people in the audience and also in business, the broader audience will take a look at that and can learn from that. But how do you, how do you change people's concept about time itself? Yeah, no, look, that's a great question. And, and I think part of it is um, one there was somebody, and I'm not going to credit this appropriately, so I'm sorry for that, but um, I was reading somewhere, uh, some, a founder of a company who was talking about being urgently long-term. And I just loved that phrasing um, because that felt to me like so exactly right. Because um, we frequently, you know, we'll, we'll find ourselves in situations where we'll be saying, well, we put long-term in the name for a reason, because <laughs> you know, we, we, we do, we want to get it right. And getting it right is more important than doing it quickly. But that doesn't mean that we don't feel a sense of urgency around getting it done and getting it right, because obviously the problems that we're trying to address are urgent problems. So I do think this idea that you want to be thinking about your impact over the long term is incredibly important. And this is true for the companies as well. But you're also operating in the here and now in an urgent way as you move toward that long-term vision. And so that's, I think that encapsulates pretty well how we approach it, which is we feel the urgency of the mission of what, and of what we're trying to achieve, but we will do it right, um, even if that takes a bit longer. It took me back to a memory that's about 30 years old, working at a convenience store back in London. And my boss would always say, take your time and hurry up. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate that. So Michelle, what are some of the valuable lessons that you would say you've learned on your journey, whether with LTSE or even prior to that? Yeah, good question. So um, I would say at LTSE for me, look, I my career until LTSE was very much um, in, you know, kind of the largest, most state institutions. <laughs> I worked at the U.S. Treasury <laughs> Department. I worked at the New York Stock Exchange. I worked at McKinsey. I worked at Harvard. You know, like really about as state as you can get and, and as establishment as you can get. And it's a joke with my team at LTSE that the youngest company I worked at before this was McKinsey, um, which, you know, is not exactly brand new. Um, so for me, as someone who's maybe a little older than most people working at startups, um, moving to a startup at this point in my career was incredibly educational. 
And I feel like the, the most important learning for me was learning how to, and, and again, this one will sound cliched as well, but it's been so true in my experience, learning to how, how to fail and to admit and embrace and learn from failure. Because I think a lot of the institutions I had worked at before, or maybe even just my own mindset was very much that failure was kind of unacceptable. You fixed it or you spun it or, you know, but you, you didn't embrace it and openly admit it with the team and talk about it and talk about what we learned from it in the same kind of way that you do at a startup. You know, of course that would happen sometimes in big failures, but we do that all the time and it's all about learning and it's all about, you know, pivoting and getting things right and and moving on to something that works better. So that embracing that mindset, which took me some time to embrace, um, has, has been really, really uh, educational for me. And the other piece of which relates to that is this idea that um, I also think particularly, you know, I started my career in a law firm, particularly in a law firm or someplace like that, you put your best product down on paper and you don't really share it with people until you feel good about it. And the process that we work with here, you know, particularly in a lean startup, is that you put things out as soon as, you know, you don't, make them better before you put them out because what's going to make them better is sharing them with others and getting feedback on them as soon as possible and then iterating on them to make them better. And that's also been a real learning for me and a really hard thing to to adjust to coming from where I was coming from. But this ability to, you know, share something and not worry that it's not perfect or what people are going to think because getting that feedback early, getting that input early, particularly from those you're trying to um, move with what you're putting out there. Um, be that software or a piece of writing or a listing standard, um, getting that feedback early and often is incredibly powerful and really helps lead to a better end product. So for me, that that change in mindset to this kind of startup approach, and you know, I had the great benefit of learning from the lean startup guy himself, um, but it's been really just a, a phenomenal um, new set of learnings kind of far into my career. It must be great to work with Eric. And to the point about failures, I think Reed Hoffman said it best when he said, if you're not embarrassed about your first version of the version you've put out, you've waited too long. Exactly. Exactly. And that's completely how we operate, which was very uncomfortable for me at first. (laughs) (laughs) Failing in public. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So speaking of long-term, what, you know, magic wand, it's 2025 or even 2030, let's go longer. What does the future hold for LTSE? What does it look like, your ideal picture? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think the ideal picture is that we have, you know, thousands of companies listed, that we are actually changing corporate behavior. Companies are taking into account in a meaningful way a different group of stakeholders, that the day to day experience of decision making in a company is focused much more on long-term value creation, that hopefully quarterly guidance doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, and and really one of the things that we as a company are trying to do is learn as we go. So we are, you know, getting a group of academics together to really track the results as, as we begin to list companies and to become um, operational as a listings venue to really track, you know, does this make a difference? Does it work? What did we get right? What did we miss? So that we can change as we need to change to really bring about the impact that we want to bring about. So my hope is when we're looking ahead 20 years, um, we have figured out 
what's important to ask of companies and what's important for them to publicly commit to in a way that accounts for differences between industries and sectors, but really holds individual companies to their own highest standard as as they're out there in the world, shares that information with their stakeholders, shares that information with their investors, their customers, their workers, so that there's a real transparency around the way that companies show up in the world and those that are doing it well and are committing to doing it well and are very transparent about that are the companies that are really succeeding. Well, I'm looking forward to that vision coming to fruition. The picture you painted is lovely. I hope so. so absolutely. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> so the last question I have for you is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? It could be professional. It could be personal. You mentioned failing in public, but whatever else you have, I'd appreciate. Yeah. So I think I'll share an anecdote because I think that that really gets to the point that is the the piece of advice that I always share, which is um, I, I worked in the Obama administration during the financial crisis. And it was, you know, as you can imagine, a crazy time to be working there. And it was amazing. And I worked with incredible people and, you know, so grateful I got to be a part of that. But at the time I had two very young children and, you know, after a period of time, it just became very clear that this was not working for me on a personal level and I needed a change. Um, and I was part of something that was really important, but I felt like I was missing something that was ultimately more important to me. And I tried to make a change internally that didn't work out. And um, the culture there was such that when we, we had, you know, very high ethical standards, you couldn't reach out to folks about jobs while you were still working there because there could be conflicts of interest. And we were, we were very, very strict about the ethics of that. So what people would do was really wait until they left. And then they would tend to send out a broad email to, you know, their whole networks talking about um, that they were leaving and what they hoped to do next and what they had learned and, you know, where their expertise was, et cetera. Um, and I was just in a very different place. <laughs> and I drafted an email that was one of those emails that, you know, you're supposed to kind of go get a cup of coffee, walk around the building <laughs> before you hit send. And I just hit send. Um, and what that email said basically was rather than going into my expertise and my professional goals, it essentially said in so many words, I'm leaving, I'm taking the next few months off, and then I'm going to do something part-time because my priority right now is that I want to have more time with my kids, um, which, you know, as as uh, a woman in the workforce would, by many people's definition, be political, be career suicide, right? Because uh, I've just articulated where my priorities are. And so I hit send quickly got a bunch of calls from friends who said, you didn't really send that to everybody, did you? Um, and yet what ended up happening, so I had a few moments of panic there for sure. But then what ended up happening was that um, I got these fantastic job offers to do really interesting work at places that never would have advertised for a part-time role. You know, if I had not put it out there, that role wouldn't have existed. But that when the company thought about their needs and what I had put out there as my needs it turned out to be a great match. And I ended up getting multiple fantastic part-time job offers that, you know, had I kind of played by the rules and done the thing that was supposed to be good for my career would have never happened. Um, so my, my take from that, which I've really lived by since then, is that you just need to be your authentic self at work. Ask for what you want. You, don't, you won't always get it. Look, there have been times I've asked for things that definitely have not been doable. But it's amazing the number of times that 
you know, a company's interests or an organization's interests and your interests actually can be very aligned, particularly if you have someone that you're working for who who's willing to work with you. And so I have found in the you know many years <laughs> since I did that, that I have been able to work on issues that I care about, but also balance that with what's important to me in my personal life. And that by asking for what I need, I may not always get it, but if you don't ask, you'll never get it. So, so I guess the messages I took it from it was to just bring your authentic self to work. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. Don't take the system as it is as a given because, you know, you can, you can make the change that you want to make and be clear about what you want and need. And then also the other takeaway for me was on paper at the time I was in my dream job. And it was an incredibly important time and an incredibly important set of issues. But when I really stepped back to think about at that moment in time, what was most important to me, staying there wasn't it, not at the cost that it, that it, what it cost me at that time. And doing that type of reprioritization, which can happen across many different parameters. But for me, that's something that I now do regularly to make sure that I'm kind of living according to the priorities that, that I feel and that I'm spending my time according to the the ways I really believe I want and should be spending it. So it, it's a hard thing to do. But one of the, the nice parts of it has been that nobody else is going to ever set those boundaries or push back for you. But when you set them and push back more times than not, and a surprisingly high percentage of the time, people are very respectful of, of those boundaries and enable you to live your life in a way that is more um, you know, authentic to how you want to be living it. Couldn't agree with you more. I recently wrote a blog post and it's titled Bring Yourself to Work. Yes. And essentially what I'm saying is that the sooner in your career that you bring yourself to work, you know, defining your priorities, the sooner you'll attract your tribe essentially exactly. and be working with people or around people that respect your priorities and your boundaries and you know, whatever lines in the sand you've drawn. So I really appreciate that. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there something I should have asked you or you'd like to share before we go? Um, no, I just, I really appreciate your focus in this podcast and, um, you know, the fascinating people that you you bring on here. I'm happy to be one of them, uh, you know, one of that group, because I think they're, they're really interesting. And the conversations I think are just increasingly important. So I guess the only thing I would add is that I do think in this particular moment, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, we're beginning to see, I hope, um, at least from a corporate perspective, some of those changes that we want to see, right? So companies don't want to be judged, unless you're Zoom, um, this quarter, by this quarter's results, right? They, they want to be judged by how they're treating their people and their employees and what their long-term plan is. And so I think we're starting to see, and hopefully we can, you know, capitalize on that and really bring about the change as, as we come out of this. But I think there are reasons to be hopeful that, that there will be some positive change on the other side of this. Michelle, that's a great place to leave off. Thank you again for your time today. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. 
If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.